Welcome everyone to Breaking Bond. For this episode, we have a special treat for all of our listeners. All I'm going to say, y'all, is that you don't meet your heroes, you listen to them. And our guest today is one of my heroes. So without further ado, I hope y'all enjoy. Hola, hola, hola. Welcome for another episode of Breaking Bond with El Profe and Letty. And what it's a beautiful day again, it right? Really is. My goodness, yeah, it's the first day. Well, we're recording this on the very first day of October, and we have a very, very special guest today. Yes, we do. I mean, so much I can say. I mean, she's a mentor of mine, a role model that I look up to. And when we're thinking about Hispanic Heritage Month or Hispanic Latinx Heritage Month, she's just so like on the top of my list of just someone that is just iconic, especially here in the state of Georgia and in Atlanta. And I've had the great pleasure of getting to work alongside her in my previous organization um, for a little bit of time. But uh, I keep I keep messing it up. How do you say it? without further Without further ado, further ado, <laughs> we would love to introduce Tina Fernandez, Executive Director of Achieve Atlanta. Welcome, Tina, to break. Uh, thank you guys so much for having me. And what a welcome. I mean, I if people could see me and uh, I, they'd see me blushing right now. So um, <laughs> thank you guys so much. <laughs> really happy to be here. Well, Tina, we are excited to have you on here. And we want and so we, let's start off. I'm always curious, and this is something I wish, like, you know, when we first started working, I wish I asked these questions earlier, but now we have the time, right? So can you share with us a little bit about what you do at Achievement as the executive director, you know, as, you know, what boss status, what is it that you do day in and day out, but mm-hmm. also sharing a little bit um, to our listeners, like, where are you from and a little bit of your, your, um, of your background? Sure. Um, I'll start with, with a little bit about my story. Um, mm-hmm. I'm originally from the Rio uh, El Valle del Rio Grande, uh, the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. So I grew up on the Texas-Mexican border um, in a town called Edinburgh and um, and spent my first 18 years there. My dad is uh, fourth, fifth generation Tejano, and my mom is an immigrant from Mexico. She's from the state of Hidalgo. And um, so I had this very bicultural, binational, um, bilingual upbringing and um, had a lot of family and a lot of friends and a lot of community um, where I grew up. Um, it was also and still is at times one of the poorest congressional districts in the country. And so there was a lot of, of necessidad. There was a lot of need, you know, for the people around us. And, um, you know, we... Um, a lot of blue collar workers, a lot of labor laborers, um, a lot of folks who worked in agriculture and the professionals where I lived were the teachers and the principals. Um, and then the really wealthy people were the, the bankers. Um, but that was pretty much, you know, the professional class where I grew up. And, um, and I had the, um, I, I always loved school. My dad was a teacher and, um, the, you know, education was always a big deal in our house. And I just, uh, I, I was good at it, you know, and I loved it and, um, did well in school and was really fortunate, um, that when it came time for me to apply to college, I had some people who really encouraged me, um, to reach, reach high. And, um, I ended up getting accepted to Harvard, um, undergrad. And so I left the Valley, um, 
and went to Harvard for undergrad, spent four years there, um, an amazing and very formative time in my life. And, um, and I can answer questions about that later. But from there, um, I ended up um, doing Teach for America. Uh, after undergrad, I was a, a bilingual teacher. I taught fourth and fifth grade in the South Bronx in New York. And another very um, formative experience for me. And then after that, um, really wanted to try to think about how to use my career to make more systemic change. Um, and so I ended up going to law school. And I went to Columbia Law School in New York. Um, and then from there, did some private practice, um, taught at the University of Texas School of Law for several years and ran their pro bono legal services program and have always kind of worked at the intersection of law and education. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was my career. My, my mission, my personal mission has always been to help people have opportunity who don't typically have the same opportunities. Um, and, and that means, you know, um, Latinos, um, African-American, low-income women, anyone who's been marginalized and who doesn't have the same access to opportunity, um, my my work has always revolved around making sure that those doors are open to everyone. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so in 2014, um, my husband was recruited for a job here in Atlanta. And so we decided to move our family from Austin, Texas to Atlanta, Georgia. And that was really um, the beginning of what has sort of been this last phase of my career, which has been um, leading Achieve Atlanta and really focusing on helping um, more students get access to a post-secondary education and earn a post-secondary degree. And, um, and that's been our work at Achieve Atlanta. So as executive director of Achieve Atlanta, I run the organization. I've, I um, started the organization with the support of you know, our funders and community um, champions and have built up a team over the last six and a half years um, and our mission is to ensure that um, Atlanta be a city where race and income no longer predict post-secondary success and upward mobility. And so that is what we do. And the way that we really try to achieve our vision is by helping um, more APS students access, afford, and earn a post-secondary degree. So that's a lot, um, lots to, to uh, talk about there, but, but that's kind of, that's kind of my story, uh, you know, in a nutshell. And just to clarify with APS, Atlanta Public Schools. Yes, Atlanta Public Schools. Uh-huh. Yeah, I tell you she's freaking awesome. That's quite right. the trajectory there. I'm <laughs> telling you, you, know, you, read, you can read her bio, but I'm telling yeah. you, she's a phenom. It's <laughs> either either awesome or old. I don't know, but you know. <laughs> Look, we're here for the stories. <laughs> yeah. You need a lot of years to do all of that, so. Well, I think I, I would love to start off at the beginning. Like, what was your upbringing like? You know, we had this conversation recently in our last podcast. We were talking about identifying as Latino, Latino or Latinx, right? What yep. was it like for you growing up? And were you culturally aware of like being Latina growing up and in your in, in your part like when you in your childhood? Yeah, it's a great question. So, um so I'm from Texas and in Texas, um, I did not refer to myself as Latina. I didn't start to uh, identify in that way, probably until I went to college. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the terms, I was born in 1972 and the terms that, um, that we used were Hispanic was a very popular term in Texas, but actually more than that was Mexicano. And um, so I was Mexican or I was Mexican-American 
And, um, and I was very steeped in that identity um, because my mom was, is from Mexico, you know, and my dad um, is Chicano and um, everybody in my family spoke Spanish and I lived on the border. So the, the, I mean, at the proximity to Mexico was literally 15 minutes. And we, back then you crossed the borders freely and, you know, you went on Sunday to eat and, you know, or to shop and buy your medicine. And then you were, you know, in back in, you know, the States. So um, I, I was very aware of my, my Mexican, Mexican American identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and 95% of the people who lived in that community were also Mexicanos. Mm-hmm. So it was actually not a very diverse community. Uh, it was very homogenous. Um, and so I didn't actually really interact with different types of people until I went to college. Um, but the other thing was we were very, because on my dad's side, we were very connected to sort of our American, um, our Americanness as well, because my grandfather was a World War II veteran. Um, my grandmother was one of the first Latina elected officials in the state of Texas. Um, she was a justice of the peace and county commissioner in Jim Wells County. And um, there were pictures on the wall of her going to JFK's inauguration and dancing with JFK and pictures of her dancing with um, LBJ. And, um, and so, so we were not, we were very connected to the idea of America and the United States as a country that included us. And that was for us as well. And that my, that my grandfather had fought for and that my grandmother, you know, in her small way helped to govern for a while. So, um, so that was my, that was my sort of, um, I guess, ethnic political identity. When I went to college, I met other Latinos and Latinas mm-hmm. um, and Mexicanos from California, Mexicanos from Chicago and, you know, with different political affiliations. And, you know, we weren't all made the same, you know, we weren't all politically the same, um, you know, with, and, and my Puerto Rican and my Dominican friends and all of my friends from South America and Central America. And so that's where I really kind of became really more aware of the concept of the Latino, which we, you know, this was the nineties, the Latino identity. Um, And I remember taking a sociology class um, about Latinos and about um, how we were not this monolith, mm-hmm. but really made up of so many different experiences um, and different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so since then, I have always referred to myself really as a Latina um, because it does encompass both my identity as a woman and as a person um, of a, a, a person in the United States of Latin American descent Mm-hmm. Um, and I use Latinx, um, to talk about the younger generation. Um, and, and I respect the term and I think there's a lot of, um, really great political thinking behind the term. Mm-hmm. Um, I also feel like people have the, the right to name themselves. Yeah. And so the name that most resonates with me is Latina. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, I don't I don't get caught up in the arguments about what to call other people, yeah. um, because it, to me, it's really much more about um, 
like how do we advance the agenda of of our families and our community and um how do we work together uh and kind of bridge those divides so there's just a lot in that but you know one thing that intrigues me the most and so tina you were were you the first in your family to go to harvard to go to to be able to attend harvard yeah yes definitely and my dad was the first person in his family to go to college um and you know so his parents didn't go my theos and theas didn't go my Thea went much later. She graduated from college when she was in her fifties, mm-hmm. um, which was actually a real inspiration. Um, my mom got her GD when I was 15 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so even, so my dad went to college. So I feel like I'm half a first gen, you know? Um, yeah. And, uh, but I was definitely the first one um, to go to Harvard or to, to any, you know, kind of uh, out of state yeah. you know, kind of named institution. So, so tell us about that. Like, what made you like, was there like, did you ever have like hesitation of like, like, like why Harvard or was like Mm -hmm. ever hesitation? Like, am I even good enough to apply? Like run us back. Like, like at that time, applying for college, like, what were you feeling like knowing that you were going to be applying to Harvard? I mean, big school in in the United States and the world. Um, so from the time that I can remember, Mm -hmm. I think like four or five my father told me that I was going to go to Harvard. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So that was, so, you know, uh, like I'm not comparing myself to any, any of the greats. Right. But you know how, like, I think about like Venus and Serena and how her dad, their dad was like, you're going to be a champion. Mm -hmm. That was my dad. Um, and and so from the very moment that I walked into kindergarten, that Mm -hmm. was the, that was the sort of like, you know, the statement of what was going to happen. Right. Um, I don't know if he knew how hard that was to do, you know, so a lot of pressure, you know, and, and, uh, there's some good stuff about that, but there's also some, some negative stuff about that as well, you know? Um, and then when I was 11 years old, um, my cousin who, who lived, you know, in the same town, got engaged, um, to a man that was from Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And that summer, um, my, this 11 years old, my mom was, was about to give birth to my younger brother and my cousin and her fiance at the time, were going to go to Massachusetts to visit his family. And they asked my parents if they could take me with them. Um, and so my parents said, yes, cause they, you know, had their hands full so I went on a road trip with my cousin and her fiance all across, um, you know, the sort of Eastern part of the United States. Mm-hmm. And as part of that trip, they took me to the Harvard campus. Mm-hmm. And so um, just walking around the campus and doing the Freedom Trail in Boston and the cobblestone streets and, you know, the oldest church in America and the, you know, just all of that made such an impression on a girl, a young girl who lived her entire life in a small community. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so then my dad's dream became my dream um, at that point, um, because I just really loved, you know, the campus and, and, um, and like I said, I really love school. So, um, but then I got to high school and the pressure of applying and the very uh, real possibility that I was not going to get accepted because it's, you know, a very selective institution 
mm-hmm. was very, very, very stressful. And I, um, I definitely went through some really hard things um, as a, as a older teenager with the amount of stress and expectations that I put on myself and that were put upon me because I was the first born and there were all these dreams that were sort of, you know, and I think for a lot of us, the dreams of our parents can serve as inspiration, but they can also serve as um, uh, some somewhat of a burden, you know, because you feel like you have to do the thing that they work so hard for you to do. And, um, and so it was, it was not all, it was not all, um, it was not all a bed of roses for sure. Um, but ultimately, you know, yeah, I ended up getting accepted and going and, um, and, you know, I'm, I, I'm a person of faith and, um, feel like, you know, it was part of God's plan for my life. And, um, and I'm very grateful to have had the opportunity. So what was your initial reaction when you actually stepped into the Harvard campus as a student officially? Like what, what were the first thoughts that came into your mind? And then how did that change? Because now you're in Harvard. Now you're a student. You know, you did the application process. Yeah. You are, um, you know, among the elite. How was that experience going to, through Harvard to get your degree? Um, so when I got there, I was so happy. I was really happy to be away from home, be on a campus. I'm a total extrovert. I love socializing. So I was like, and one thing about my, you know, my upbringing was I didn't feel like I didn't belong. So when I got there, I was like, oh, I'm just same as everybody else here. You know, like I didn't come in with like, oh my God, like all these people know so much more at all. Uh, and some of that was, was like, uh, youthful naivete, you know, and, and later on I realized things, you know, but it was, I was actually glad that I was so naive because I just didn't, I didn't come in with like this baggage of like, I don't belong here and I'm not smart enough. And I'm not, you know, I was like, let's do this. Like I was super excited. Um, but the big thing that I did realize was the wealth disparity and the economic disparity between me and my peers. And um, I tell this story that um, when I got to campus, I actually did this freshman outdoor program where you go and hike the Appalachian trail for, for six days before school starts. And I signed up for that. I had never hiked in my life. You know, I don't, but again, I'm like, yes, like, let's do it. I'll do it. You know? So I get there and didn't even have like hiking boots or anything. And, you know, that's another story. But um, when I got there, the the dining halls were not open. And because we were going to go on this trip, right? So there was a day we were there before we were leaving. Mm-hmm. And I had to figure out how to eat. Um, and, you know, I wasn't on the meal. I was on the meal plan. Um, and I didn't have, I mean, my parents didn't, couldn't give me, you know, a lot of money. I didn't have spending money. At that point, I didn't have a job. Mm-hmm. So I just had a few dollars on me. And I remember I went across the street um, to a bagel place, right? It's Boston. And I ordered a bagel and I ordered something to drink. And when the, when they rang it up, I didn't have enough money. And so I was like, oh, I think I'm going to have to put this back. And then I heard a voice behind me say, oh, I got that. I'll got, I got it for her. And I turned around and um, it was this older black man in a bow tie and a tweed jacket. And, um, and he was the Dean of students who happened to be there, you know, and 
kind of saw what was happening and paid for my meal. And I just remember like that being a moment of, again, like, you know, where I've always depended on the kindness of strangers, mm-hmm. um, where I probably, there weren't that many students that this Dean had ever seen who couldn't pay for a bagel, mm-hmm. you know? And so, um, so that was, that was the real, and then, and then in terms of like my educational, um, upbringing, what I realized was that most of my peers, because a lot of them came from private schools or some of the top Mm -hmm. high schools in the country, Mm -hmm. had had a much more robust, rigorous high school education than I had. Um, We didn't have AP classes in my school. You know, um, I came with a lot of deficits in terms of just like what I had learned and how to study. And so later on, as time grew on, I realized, oh, I actually haven't had the same preparation and I need to like figure out how to, um, how to learn and how to study and how to take notes and how to take college exams. And my, and I felt like my peers were already much further along, Mm -hmm. um, in that game. So, um, but it was, it was a great experience and I got involved very quickly in a student organization called city step, which is a dance organization that teaches dance and theater to, um, public school kids in Cambridge and that became my family on campus. Um, I was a I was a cheerleader in high school. I loved to dance. I loved working with kids, and that was also where I think I um, started to decide that I wanted to focus on educational equity um, as part of my career. So it was a it was a really great great experience um, and a lot of tough lessons, but. Um, you know, but overall, I was very grateful to be able to be there. Now, being at, at, at Harvard, did you ever feel like a toll or like an impact on your mental health, like while being a student there? Because I know like we, we know a couple of students that go to Harvard and like there's always like the imposter syndrome, the depression sometimes where it's like you're far away from home mm-hmm. yeah. or even anxiety because the level of, of the academics, you know, it's, it's a lot higher. It's a lot more rigorous. Yeah, so there is more demanding, right? Yeah. Did you ever feel that while you were a student there? Oh, yeah. And I'll, this will probably be controversial for anyone who went to Harvard, but I think most people at Harvard have mental health issues mm. um, because you, you don't get to those levels without some major like uh, sacrifice stress, yeah. you know? Um, mm. And so, you know, this is something that I actually haven't really shared um, very to, for very many people to very many people in my life. So, um, mm-hmm. so this is, you know, breaking, uh, oh, but, um, but one of the things day. I want yeah, yeah. But one of the things I want to, I want to talk about, um, one of the things that I've been reflecting on is, you know, next year I'm going to be 50 and, and I, it's time to just be real about like the struggles and what it really takes, you know, especially as a woman, as a Latina coming through this, through this environment. So, So I had an eating disorder from the time I was 15 until I was about 20 years old. So I came to school with already some pretty big, you know, um, behavioral health, mental health challenges. And now I know that that was a result of all of the pressure that I was putting on myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is what I say, like that high expectations can be, can push you and propel you forward but it can also be really damaging if you don't have balance, um, if you don't have somebody who can provide sort of like a 
pressure release, you know, and tell you it's okay to not have to do all of the things perfectly. And I think for a lot of women of color, we feel like we can't just be good. You actually have to beat everybody else just to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, that was a struggle that I battled through my sophomore year in college. Mm -hmm. Um, But the good, this is a good thing about going to a school like Harvard. They had a lot of resources. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden I had access to um, consistent, free therapy Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, group therapy and, stability in housing and in food and in, you know, living that, um, I, you know, and so I did all of that while I was in school and the school had the resources to provide that to me. I think where for most of the students that we serve at Achieve Atlanta, they're not going to schools that have a lot of resources and colleges and universities can't provide that support. And that's, that is, I think where we're failing students. So now you know, we're in the COVID era and students, I think everyone is traumatized and all of our students have been through major loss in these last 18 months. And my wish would be that colleges and universities and high schools and any student serving institution would prioritize mental health services at the very top of the list, Mm -hmm. because the idea that students can perform academically while they're dealing with unresolved trauma or ongoing trauma or mental health illness is, is we are fooling ourselves. And as somebody who lived that herself and who thank God was able to get the help, there's no way that I would have made it through without the resources that my college and university provided Mm -hmm. to me. So, so yeah. You you know, that's so real and so raw because the reality, and thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's in this, I think there's something that plagues not only the Latino community, but a lot of communities, especially communities of color, where it's like mm-hmm. mental health is such a taboo topic to talk yep. about, right? And so, I mean, I commend you. I mean, that's awesome that you, you know, you're, you're, you're now that you're sharing this. I know, like, I tell my students all the time, like, when I was going through college, like, that's when I was like suicidal, I was depressed. Like, yeah. I tell people that openly now, but like, it's so hard to be able to talk about it because of just being taboo, right? Right. So we did, and when you were going through this, do you think, and you know, I hope I'm not, you know, yeah, yeah. Lines, but like, we, do you think your family was aware of this? Like that you had the eating disorder? They were aware and they were very worried about me, but they didn't know what to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so like, I think, and that's, that's a lot of our parents, right. They love us. And, and I, what I will say is that they prayed nonstop and, and, you know, and so like, I believe that that prayer then, put yeah. me in touch with the, the resources that, you know, I needed to be able to like get past that. Yeah. But, um, but they didn't know because how they weren't, didn't get to go to therapy growing up and yeah. it's a taboo thing. And, and what is this, you know, this thing that you're going through and it was very, um, it was not well understood back then. So um they knew and they loved me and they hurt for me, um, but they didn't really know how to support me through that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the case for a lot of a lot of Latino parents. Yeah. Um, they, they don't know 
how to help their young people going through these issues. But did you discuss this afterwards when you were much older with your parents regarding, you know, the issue that you were facing? Uh, like, hi, mom and dad, why didn't you like talk to me or, well, you know. Uh, I'm very close with my parents and I don't have any, um, I don't have any uh, anger or unresolved, you know, like, you know, we've, we've, um, we've worked through it, you know, throughout. Yeah. Yeah. So curious to know, you kind of mentioned this, you know, when you were sharing your experience of Harvard. So would you say Harvard was like the pinnacle point for you where you found your mission of like, I really want to get into education and help others with, you know, access. Would you say that's where it started or do you or did that start before? Did you start feeling that while you were before Harvard? Yeah, I mean, I don't believe there's like one pinnacle moment. I think there are these moments in your life that kind of have an impact on you. And I grew up in a family that always valued service, right? Like I said, my grandmother was a politician. My dad was a teacher and he was also a pastor, uh, a music minister. So, you know, um, serve people that way. So the, the ethic of service was always ingrained in us. So I already came to school with that. And then at school, you know, at college, I got, I saw the disparities in educational, you know, opportunity and, and wealth and, you know, just um, those things that I knew my friends back at home hadn't been able to experience. And so that really, um, I think like put educational equity at the sort of um, center of what I wanted to do. And I loved working with young people. And then my Teach for America experience, like more solidified that. But then I became a lawyer and I learned about the, you know, legal services gap and how like poor people don't have access to legal representation, which is why we end up in, you know, overrepresented in, you know, incarceration, in, um, you know, uh, all kinds of issues where if we had had decent legal representation, we could have had better outcomes. And so then I focused on, you know, access to um, to representation for many years while I was at UT Law School running the pro bono legal services program. And then when I moved, you know, to Atlanta, the opportunity to work on post-secondary access presented itself. So what I would say is I don't think there's been uh, this like one moment that I was like, the here, I found my life mission. It's more about like, a set of values that have always been, you know, present and then opportunities presenting themselves. And then me trying to figure out like, where am I in my life? Mm -hmm. And does this align with my values? And um, is this somewhere that I think I can make, you know, I can make a contribution. And, and I think that goes on for your whole life. Like, I don't feel like I'm done. Um, And I think like, you know, you know, so like, I think like you always have to be thinking about like, you know, God, what you gave me certain talents and, and certain, you know, certain treasures, where do you want me to use those? And where do you want me to use those next? And so that's, you know, that's what I think about. Yeah. So you went from Harvard, you went to Columbia, right? Yeah. For law school. Very, very big schools. Um, was it, did the experience change going into Columbia? Was it more or less the same as Harvard? How was that experience? Yeah, I loved Columbia as well. Um, and at Columbia, um, I got really, um, I think, much more in touch with my Latina identity. Um, and so I, I was, I eventually became the president of the Latin American Law Students Association. Um, it was New York City. Um, and, you know, law school is a professional school. So, you know, where you're going to go, you know, people are, 
everyone wants to be a lawyer. Everyone wants to get those choice legal jobs. Everyone's competitive. Like, you know, no, college is more sort of like the exploration. And the for me, anyway, I was a liberal arts major and the learning and the theory. And I was at law school is like, all right, we're like, you're going to go out into the world and be a lawyer. And like, you got to like start refining your skills. Um, so I love law school. Um, but my, the big thing from, from Columbia was the, the Latino Law Students Association and, and the folks that I met there are still some of my best friends today. Um, and so it was really amazing to have this community of like ambitious, smart, like, and most, most of us were women, um, like group of Latinas who were just like badasses and who like literally are out in the world doing some amazing things. Um, and, and many of whom had backgrounds similar to mine. So, um, so law school was great. I really, really loved it. It reminds me so much of, you know, I completely agree. Like undergraduate is a very different experience than when you're trying to get, you know, more of a professional degree, like just uh, listening to Tina, uh, it reminds me so much of my, my grad school experience and how yeah. in a cohort, you just get so connected to the people around you, yeah. especially people you can like relate to the most, you know, yeah. you do form a very, very special a bond. bond. Yeah. 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 And then they're your colleagues. They yeah. become your professional colleagues. Right. So like, that I think is um, what's really cool about about that experience. Yeah. Now, throughout your journey, right? Like you know, and this can include you know professionally and also like when you were in school and, and in law school. You said you in Colombia. That's where you started really connecting with your Latina side, right? Yeah. So, were there any points that you felt like? And I, I think we talked about this in the last podcast where it was just like not to say you swallowed your identity, but like you had to like check yourself, right. And being able to say like, okay, like I'm in this space, I'm trying to do X, Y, and Z, but I also am aware that I, I identify as Latina and it might not be accepting in the room that I'm in currently. Did you ever feel that way at all? I didn't. I mean, I'm not, I, and I'm, I would be lying if I said, I, but I think that's more of just my personality. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I just, um, I feel like you, I could be in any room and feel like I belong. Mm. Um, that's not to say that I haven't had an imposter syndrome. I have. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, I think, I'm not sure. Like, so here are the places where I have felt mm-hmm. like I had to wear a mask. I didn't yeah. feel that in school. And probably because I love school and I was good at it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I... Uh, you know, I was, I, I, I didn't feel like I had to wear a mask at Harvard. I didn't have, I didn't feel like I had, I definitely didn't feel like I had to wear a mask at Columbia. It was a very diverse school. And I had a group of very like centered, you know, Latinas around me where we felt like, you know, we had each other's back. Yeah. I did feel like that when I started practicing law at a big law firm in Texas mm. where, um, um, at a hundred people firm, there were maybe three Latinos. And this was in the state of Texas where we now make up the majority of the state, right? Mm-hmm. So that was a very traditional Southern um, experience where I did feel like I had to, I had to put on the mask of, mm-hmm. um, you know, t- speaking a certain way, looking a certain way, um, you know, mm-hmm. sort of, uh, assimilating to whatever the culture was at the law firm, which was just very white dominant. Um, so I felt that 
I felt that there. The other place I felt that was when I was, um, I was a clinical professor at the University of Texas Law School. And again, uh, UT Law School is a public institution, you know, in the state of Texas. And on the law faculty, there were maybe four Latinos. And I was on the clinical side. So, um, and we're talking like heavy hitters, right? We're talking Norma Cantu, who's now in the Biden administration, and Gerald Torres, who did critical race theory. And, um, and then me on the clinical side, I was not a, I was not a tenure track professor. I was more on the experiential clinical side. And, you know, maybe I'm leaving one or two out, but like, that was it. And that was another place where I was very aware, not just of my, like, you know, we call them the lonely onlys, not just of being the lonely only, but of the fact that we were not represented in those rooms. Um, and so those were the two experiences where I most felt mm-hmm. like I needed to kind of never swallow my identity, but kind of present with a, uh, you know, with a, a little bit of a mask on. Yeah. What were the things that you felt like you had to like wear a mask on? Cause we, so we recently talked and shared like how here at the institution that we work at, I had an incident where I was talking to a colleague in Spanish and someone walked by told us that, Hey, you can't speak that language here. And so then <laughs> I had my own little drama with that. What? I'm very outspoken. So yeah. So yeah, it, yeah. it, it got intense, but Georgia, the, uh, Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. I mean, that's just like, not even uh, like, it's like, are we back? in the like 1950s like come on you know well we are in north georgia (laughs) (laughs) but um but like what were some of the things that you felt like you did have to wear a mask was like did you ever was it more like the cultural like the language or was just like speak because i know that i always hear that a lot where it's like Mm -hmm. you have to speak you know specific way or different like a way or present yourself right yeah like uh but yeah but did you what were some of the things that you felt like you had to put the mask on for it's a that's a really hard question larry because i think that sometimes we don't even really know how much we've internalized like white dominant culture Mm. right so um you know i i I try to live an authentic life. I have tried, mm-hmm. but I think like there are things that, you know, I, I don't know if there's, there's a way you speak, there's a way you dress, there's a way you present yourself. Um, you don't talk a lot about feelings, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I've thought a lot about now being a leader, a Latina leader and how I lead and, I don't just lead with the analytical and the cognitive. I lead a lot with the heart and with vulnerability and with feeling and with the concept of familia, you know, and those are, those are not white dominant male, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, structures. So I guess what I, I guess it wasn't that I was that I was um, suppressing it just was that I wasn't bringing my whole self mm. and I wasn't pulling on those parts of me that I think were very formed by my Latino culture, right? The family, um, the community aspect, 
the faith, the, 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 you know, the joy, um, the, you know, we love to joke around, you know, you have to be more serious in a, like, you know, certain environment. Um, but I think like, I think it's really hard to know how much each of us have internalized that dominant culture. Mm -hmm. And I think we all have to some degree, which is why we are where we are. Right. So yeah. I think that's just a constant uh, question that we should all be asking ourselves. Yeah. Especially like, I think like now, you know, we should be talking more about it because you don't realize until you go through the motions or you're experiencing things like, oh, wow, like this is when I had to put on the mask or this mm -hmm. is when I have to like suppress or maybe have to like suppress my own identity. Right. Because it is tough in certain spaces, especially when it's white dominant. Yeah. So no, for sure. You have a question? Yeah. She mentioned the concept of leadership. Yeah, that's, 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 that's why we're so good together. Okay, go ahead. So, thanks. You know, I lost, I lost my train of thought. Don't worry about it. The concept of leadership, you know, you mentioned it. Has your concept changed based off of experience? And also, like, what does it take to form those leadership skills? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I think about leadership a lot. And um, someday, you know, I would love to write a book on leadership and I have a title yes. um, and it's called Leading the Latina Way um, oh, because I feel like, you know, so let's trade, let's trademark that, copyright that now. Nobody can okay. use that. Um, but um, I do think that there's, that, so my journey has been about finding my authentic leadership voice. Mm -hmm. and um, and being able to feel confident in pulling on those things that are unique to me in in leading. Um, and so I've had leadership positions throughout my throughout my whole life, right? In high school, I was, you know, in leadership positions with student organizations. In college, I was the executive director of this organization city staff that I ran. Um, in law school, I was the president of the Law Students Association. So that that is again another sort of like value I think that was ingrained in me when I was growing up, right? It was not just serving but leading where when you were called to lead. So, um, so I think leadership at the end of the day is energy work, um, and I think it's about motivating people and about um, helping to um, get a group of people to take action and to work together to accomplish, you know, a certain goal or a certain vision or a certain set of, of, of um, objectives. Um, a lot of people can be managers, right? And managers are the people who are like, okay, this is what we're going to do. And here's the to-do list. And here's how we, you know, how's we're going to get it done. And that is really important. But leading is about, trying to tap into the internal motivation and the external motivation of mm -hmm. what makes us do what we do. Mm -hmm. And like, how do you get a group of people to do something together? Mm -hmm. um, and so, so to be able to motivate others, I think you have to really know yourself and know, you know, what motivates you, what your values are. And so over the years for me, what I've done a lot of work on is trying to get really clear on my own personal values and my own leadership values um, and practice the art of vulnerability because I think like, you know, I'm a big fan of Brene Brown and this whole idea of like, if you're going to lead other people, like you've got to be vulnerable because yeah. they've got to trust you. Um, and so I think that's really key 
And then, like I said, one of the best things about running Achieve Atlanta has been that I have been able to lead it from an authentic place of who I am. And that includes all of the dimensions from the like, you know, Ivy League graduate to the, you know, Mexicana from the Mexican border to the Latina mom raising two, you know, Latinx kids in the city of Atlanta Mm -hmm. um, to, you know, um, all of the different identities that I carry with me. And, and I think that there is something really powerful on being able to bring the feminine and the family and the community orientation and the, you know, uh, let's face it, like Latinas, like sometimes we've got a little sass to us, you know, like, and a little bit of an edge and like that can work sometimes too, you know, and the nurturer and the, you know, the, the Adelita, you know, I mean, we've got, we've got all kinds of, of personas wrapped up in our identity. And so it's been really, one of my like greatest joys to be able to like pull on those identities mm-hmm. um, as a leader. And being a leader in Atlanta, being a Latina leader, I mean, what does that feel like for you? Because I go around and like, especially because I'm mainly in Gwinnett, that's where I live and yeah. I'm in social circles in Gwinnett. And so a lot of these networking events and I'll, and I tell people all the time about Tina, I'll be just like, yo, like, do y'all know Tina? Like y'all got to look her up. Like, I mean, she's doing amazing <laughs> things. And I kid you not, most of the other Latinos, it's mainly Latina leaders that I find mm-hmm. in Gwinnett County. And when they hear your story, when they read your story, they're like, oh, wow, how have I not heard about her? Mm-hmm. Like they fall in love just when they read your bio too. But like, what is that for you? Like having this role, having this influence in Atlanta and being a Latina, like what does that mean to you? Um, I, I, it's a great responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I take it really seriously. Um, and I think like for a long time, I didn't realize that I was... Um, So one of the things that I've always done is minimize my own worth or value or accomplishments. Right. And when I left the university of Texas law school, we were moving to Atlanta, um, the Chicano law students association, I was their faculty advisor and, um, they had a, like a, a annual banquet and they gave me an award. And one of the law students went up there and talked about, how important it was for her to see me walking through the halls. Right. Mm. And that did not, I had never thought of myself as that. Right. I was like, you know, I've got my office, I'm doing my thing. I love my students, but it didn't ever occur to me that my just being there was important for somebody. Mm -hmm. And, and so then I realized like I have a responsibility um, to, you know, to, again, this idea of expectations, but not for me, but for other people to be the best leader that I can be and to do the best work that I know how to do, because, um, I want to be an inspiration to other Latinas. And then I also know the flip side of it. And this is where the expectation piece comes in because there are not that many of us. Mm-hmm. If we mess up, then people think, oh, see, they can't do it. Yeah. 
Right. And so like you, you gotta, you, you know, it's like, you have to be, you know, bigger, better, faster, stronger, you know, because um, there's a responsibility to the people who are coming behind you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so crazy. And, you know, just listening to your story now, like there, there was the weight when you were, you know, going and your dad was telling you go to Harvard. Yeah. Now you still have, like in some ways you still have that weight in being in this role because right. you know of the fact that like you play this role, you also have the weight of the fact that, you know, if you do fail, people are just going to mm-hmm. say, Oh, like they can do it. Right? right. But there's also that responsibility to be able to be the inspiration for the next Latina or Latino that wants to come up as well. Because like going back to what you mentioned, it's like, there's not that many of us right, right. in those leadership capacities. Yeah. And I think the difference now, Larry, me <laughs> at 49 versus me at 18 mm-hmm. is that I have, done a lot of work on being more compassionate with myself and, and, um, and understanding that um, I was not put on this earth to perform for other people. I was put here to, to do the work that I've been called to do. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so you have that expectation, but it now comes from a healthier place because you want to do good in the world and not because of these outside expectations of who you're supposed to be. And that's a journey. Um, And, you know, I wish that I had been able to get there earlier. I'm still working on it. Mm -hmm. But I think that again, for Latinas out there who are, you know, trying to figure out their way, I think being loving and self-compassionate and nurturing to yourself is so key because it's going to make you resilient and it's going to help you um, bring your best authentic self forward um, in your work. I'm telling you, like, in fact, Tina's just dropping all these gems. I'm, le- I'm legit writing notes. You caught, me in a good, you caught me in a good moment. You caught me in a good moment. <laughs> this is what we do at Breaking Fun. We break the bread. <laughs> so, so you mentioned really a lot of good advice. I guess what other advice would you give to especially young uh, Latino, Latina college students or young Latino, Latina, you know, professionals who are greatly yeah. graduating from college, you know, because uh, as we know, there's a lot of barriers that we have to overcome to actually uh, succeed in what we want to do. Yeah. So I would say dream big mm-hmm. and um, like lean on your friends and your community. That has become, especially during this COVID era, what I have realized is that your community, my community, my friends, my families, my family is the thing that sustains me, right? And so, like, I think for all of us, we should be nurturing our relationships, nurturing our friendships, um, pursuing our dreams, dreaming big, not limiting ourselves before we even start, um, and, and then putting in the hard work. And that goes without saying, right? But we know how to work hard. That's, that's built into our DNA. Um, what we don't know always how to do is work smart, you know? And so like, I think that's the other thing is, you know, work hard, but work smart. And, uh, you know, the sky's the limit. Yeah. I want to go back to the one thing about like, you know, you, you mentioned about loving yourself. There, there's, there's this big conversation about self-care, right? What yeah. are some things that you do for self-care now that you're, at this level, you know, not at 18, but like now mm-hmm. as you're getting closer to 50, what is the self-care that you do now that is yeah. different, or that you learned? Yeah. I think it's like really important to think of yourself as a whole human being, which is mind, body, and spirit. 
Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, on the mind stuff, I, I read, you know, I try to stay up to date. I'm always, I'm a learner. I love learning new things. So, you know, I'm always learning. I'm pushing my thinking on things on the, on the body side. Um, I work out pretty regularly walk and running are both are walking and running are my things. Um, I try to, you know, eat healthy sleep has become really important. You know, I've tried to really have, have good sleep habits, um, and get at least seven to eight hours of sleep a night. Like it's, these are all basic things, but you actually have to prioritize them to be able to, you know, to, to make them happen. Um, and then on the spiritual side, I think a prayer, you know, going to church, meditating, um, journaling, like I've incorporated a lot of these practices. And again, they they take time um, and they're an investment in yourself, but they really are worthwhile um, because the work is really hard. And so you've only got this one, one being here that, mm-hmm. you know, you have control over. So you got to take care of it. Now, looking at things, because you, your son is now at Harvard. Now, yeah. how does it feel as a mother? <laughs> like, no, you went through this incredible journey, right? Now, seeing your son go to Harvard, what is that like for you? Um, it makes me incredibly proud, you know? And it's like a thing that we... Um, that it's, it's a nice thing to be able to like, talk to him about like, what house are you living in? What dorm are you living in? What, um, what are you studying? Um, and it, um, it's just really amazing. And so it's fun. Cause I get to go visit him on campus and, but he's having his own experience. And, um, and I just love hearing like what he's learning. And then I have my daughter who's at Rice university mm-hmm. and that is amazing as well, because she's at a whole new different campus and I get to hear about like all of the things she's doing and it's amazing. And I'm so impressed with what the school is doing for her. And so what I love about both of my kids' experiences is that they're charting their own paths. And, um, and, and I just love being a part of hearing like their own journey and their own self-discovery. And, and as a mom, like, you know, mis bebitos, you know, <laughs> Mis niños lindos. What else can I say? You know. Yeah, we got to make sure they they hear this. (laughs) Got to hear this. (laughs) Listen to your mom's stories. (laughs) Well, awesome. Well, Tina, I know we're coming up on time. We want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to us and share your story. Um, And Prof, any other last thoughts or questions before? No, I guess just the last question is: any final advice you can give to just anybody who wants to accomplish their dreams? Yeah. I mean, so, um, you know, I, I would say faith, hope, and love, you know, and, and I didn't make that up. That's, uh, you know, that's all of our podcast episode. Okay. So, you know, I think that if you hold on to those three things, um, life is going to be good. Appreciate it so much. Well, thank, thank you again, Tina, so much. With that, folks, we are wrapping up. Be, stay tuned for our next episode. We got mm-hmm. another big heavy hitter. So, yep. you know, we're stacking up on this. Yeah, like, we're like, picking yeah. up steam, so, right? All right, then. So we'll go ahead, and, go ahead and take us off. All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We will see you um, next time. Bye.